Greyhound to trap one. Over. Thank you for downloading the Trap One podcast. My name is Mark McManus. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Eric Stadnick back to discuss Series 11. Hi, Eric. Oh. How are you? Hello. I'm doing well, and thank you for having me back. No problem. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, so today, we're going to be talking about Series 11, uh, the first series since the PC Brigade took over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag sarcasm. Yeah, introduce political correctness into Doctor Who for the first time ever. So yeah, it had always been a right-wing reactionary show before that. Yeah, I know. I, I really miss the casual racism. and. Uh, <laughs> well, that, there was that. <laughs> well, actually, yes. Yeah, <laughs> Not recently. <yeah. laughs> Not so much recently, at least, but yeah. No. It's a... uh, so, did you enjoy the series overall? Um, no, but... Okay. No with an if, yes with a but. Um... Mm-hmm. No, but I think there were many good elements that I quite liked and I hope will continue to be highlighted more in Season 12. Uh, On the whole, it didn't really resonate with me, but, um, you know, that sometimes happens with Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So what what elements did you enjoy? That's what we liked first. Yeah, let's start with with really good things. uh, Well, let's start with the most prominent, obviously, is Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor. I thought she was phenomenal. I Mm -hmm. don't think she was always given as much to do as I would have liked to have seen. But everything she was given to do, she did very, very well, I thought. Um, I thought she had a different take on the Doctor. It legitimately felt like sort of more like a first among equals sort of vibe. As opposed to, you know, I'm in charge and you're the sidekicks, which can sometimes happen with other doctors. Almost Mm. all other doctors, to be honest. Um, And I thought her portrayal sort of melded nicely with that. I thought she genuinely... It's also interesting seeing her being the only one... Not the only one, but she carries most of the the weight of the comedy. Um. Like, they sprinkled around the companions, but she, most of the jokes are her being goofy. And she does it very well. Um, but she also did the anger parts very well. Like, I thought she was just legitimately quite good. Yeah, I agree. I think um, the the times when, when she really came alive to me were the, the sort of the, the comedy bits, the quirkiness. Um, but then when she had a confrontation, like, with uh, James I... I was just thinking about the Witchfinders, yeah. I wanted to see more of, yeah. Uh, But I agree, like, uh, they they call it out in the Witchfinders, aren't they, the flat team structure, um, Mm -hmm. where, yeah, she's she's not absolutely the leader all the time and that kind of thing, yeah. I I, I really enjoy her portrayal and agree with with the material sometimes. The thing I sort of think I miss, she's very sort of emphatic all the time. You don't get the asides, maybe, that I associate with the Doctor. Hmm. Um, there's, uh, but I mean, she's an absolutely fantastic actress and, uh, obviously it's going to develop over time. So we'll get to see, see different sides of her. Yeah. I think, I think what's interesting is, um, like, I think if we had thought about most of the doctors just after their first seasons, we would have had similar sort of like, well, where's the dimensions? Um, like, the first season, you know, the only season of Eccleston, I think Eccleston sometimes gets a bad rep because he seems a bit all one notey because he only has 13, story, 13 episodes. I think if you'd had more, 
uh, you know, David Tennant's first season is just him and Rose. And then we get two more seasons of him without Rose, and you realize how different the character is when Rose isn't there. And so I think to sort of, I don't want to come down too hard on like, oh, well, she's not doing the full range. Probably because I think this season was heavily about introducing her, introducing the sort of Team TARDIS family dynamic, and sort of doing a sort of mission statement for the overall tone of the show in this new era. And then they can start playing with that more, hopefully, in season 12. Obviously, if season 12 is identical to season 11, I'll be like, well... But I think so far what we have is a nice little sort of mission statement of a season. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so talking of the, yeah. the, the TARDIS team, mm-hmm. um, I thought uh, Bradley Walsh was very good. He was the one that, that probably people had the most misgivings about beforehand. I think he's, he's mainly known in the UK. He's a kind of a light entertainer. He's a game show host, a comedian. Um, although he's done acting, um, he's not probably best known for that. Um, and I'd expected him mainly to be the sort of comic relief here. But mm-hmm. I thought he was uh, he was a bit like Bernard Cribbins uh, as Wilfie. He did that kind <laughs> of uh, restrained emotion very well um, in, in a few scenes. And I, I thought he did very well. It's, it's funny that you say that because viewing it as a, non, a non-Brit, I didn't even know Bradley Walsh had done all this sort of, you know, like hosting quiz shows and whatnot. My only exposure to him really had been on the Chris Chibnall-produced Law & Order UK, where he plays, like, the older, more cynical, jaded cop. If anyone's a Law & Order fan, he's essentially the British Lenny Briscoe. He's doing that sort of, like, wisecracky. And so he felt very natural. I immediately was like, oh, it's that guy off Law & Order UK doing a similar sort of thing, but this time nicer, softer... Uh, and with sort of more more conscious empathy, if that's a thing. Like, Bradley Walsh played very well a sort of older man who clearly is trying very hard to be, to for lack of a better term, he's trying to be woke. Like, he's trying to be aware of all this stuff around him. And I really like that about him. Um, I thought he was, yeah, I thought he was great. And I think it, it was interesting. And I, 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 I don't know how I feel about the sort of, um, gender dynamics of of giving him the sort of voice of moral authority that he often was, um, you know, versus it having being the doctor, having that sort of like moments of sort of moral insight and wisdom. But it does work nicely with the sort of cast, which is that he's the older guy um, and he has that sort of yeah, you could call it Wilf. I thought all the way back to like the first Doctor, where he sort of gets the sort of um, Ian-y moments almost to sort of come in and and be the sort of like, no, this is the right thing to do, and um, we're good people, and 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 all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I thought he was fantastic. I thought, and yeah, I, he was definitely an he was an immediate highlight for me, and he stayed that way almost continuously throughout the season. I did think from uh, the first episode, The Woman Who Fell to Earth, that they were going to go in a slightly different direction with him. Because there's the one line when they find out that Ryan um, touched that, that kind of symbol appeared in the woods, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of consent then for the, uh, the hunt to take place for, for Tim Shaw to come yeah. to Earth. Uh, and he says something like, 
I suppose you're going to blame that on the dyspraxia as well. And I thought, oh, he's going to be, mm. they, that, that's going to kind of be their relationship. Um, whereas it came down to, uh, you know, that, that was a kind of a, a, an isolated event. And it came down to really whether Ryan's character would call him grandpa, which I thought there was maybe room for a more interesting uh, kind of problem between them to be to be resolved. Because, I don't know, the, the grandpa thing, uh, the grandfather thing, like, it's a bit odd because Ryan's a grown man already um, to, <laughs> <laughs> to want to be called um, granddad. It was... Uh, it, it, yeah, and he was only with Grace for a handful of years. Yeah. If I remember, three years or whatever, I forget. But it's not... It's not like he married Grace when Ryan was 10. No, he would have been 16. I think he's, he's 19 in the series. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was struck me as a bit of an odd thing and, and not a, a huge problem to overcome to, uh, you know, to reconcile the relationship. Uh, yeah, I think, I think we should definitely put a pin in that uh, because yeah. I think that's something I will, have, I will have issues with throughout the season is the sort of development or lack thereof for the companions. But I thought as presented episode to episode... There was almost always a moment where uh, Graham, as as Bradley Walsh, got to do something that was sort of like, felt really sort of either genuinely quite funny, he was often funny moments, but also he really brought the emotional weight mm-hmm. in a way that um, was nice. Yeah. So I, I quite liked him. The bit, one of the bits that stands out is <laughs> the, uh, the wedding when he knows, um, oh, I've forgotten the character's name, uh, is it, it's not Manish, is it, who... The guy who Prem, yeah, yeah, um, I forget, yeah, I forget which one is which, but yeah, yeah, he's got going. Yeah, Prem, to... Prem is the one who's going to die. Yeah, that's right. And um, he, they, they're getting him ready for his uh, his wedding to, uh, to, um, to Yazzie's grandma, her grandmother, who's yeah, the, yeah, yeah, whose name is escaping me also. Yeah, um, and he's just sort of. Getting him ready, knowing that he's going to his death, and I, I thought that was a, that was a great scene from Bradley Walsh. The, the way he played that was perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and we can we can talk about whether he was the person who should have had that moment. I think that's my biggest objection to Bradley Walsh is I felt like he was often very good, but I kept wondering should it be Graham who gets this moment, and it felt like it was always Graham who got the moment. But that's a you know that's a separate question. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so Umbreen was her name, by the way. Umbreen. That's it. Yeah, I should uh, should have this open actually. <laughs> yeah, I have I have the Wikipedia pages open, so I can sort of refresh my memory because just it's a lot of episodes to keep track of all the names. Cool. That's see, that's what a pro does. That's, uh, <laughs> 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 uh, okay, I'm going to open now. So, uh, so yeah, as we move on to uh, to Yaz and Graham. Gavin Ryan. Oh, sorry, right. I'll, I'll, I'll edit that. <laughs> so we move on Or not, to... whatever. <laughs> uh, this is the first one where I'm looking professional because we're both recording and I run... Uh, <laughs> 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 I don't want to ruin the effect. Um, huh. So if we move on to Yaz and Ryan. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, Yaz, I think, has is, is been sort of commented everywhere is is not well served generally even the stories mm. that uh, that are about her her grandmother or her family she doesn't ever seem to to get much to get her teeth into or we don't learn that much about her no the, i i strongly feel there was a an entire subplot for yaz that was cut right 
<coughs> I just, um, and obviously I don't have a ton of like, I don't have like, you know, versions of earlier scripts or whatever, but especially interacting to the UK, I feel like there was meant to be more there about why Yaz is so separate from her family, why she feels so isolated, why, what it is that she's not being clear about. Um, an, an obvious thing to go with would be that Yaz is gay or bisexual or queer, something like that, because that seems to be implied several times, but it's never said. Um, and, you know, far be it for me to think anyone should immediately be happy discussing their sexuality at any given moment. Obviously, that's not how life works. So I wouldn't hold it against them to be like, well, Yaz wasn't ready to deal with it yet. And Yaz deals with it in season 12 or whatever. But I think it feels like there's just an, a, a gap there. Like everyone else gets something to sort of hold on to through the season. And Yaz just doesn't. Um, I liked her. Um, but I, I honestly feel like I really don't know her very well. Um, but that said, I think I remember about halfway through the season, it must have been somewhere around Saranga Conundrum, um, which is about when I realized this season isn't for me. Uh, <laughs> and I was I was reading, um, you know, some some web group, a member of some Facebook group or something. And someone said, you know, I'm starting to worry Yaz isn't getting a lot of character development. And I I kind of like, yes, nodded, yes. And someone else responded, like, oh, how can you say that? And they listed sort of very basic things about the character. Like, she was a cop and now she's shooting a gun. I'm like, well, that's not character development. But if that makes a viewer feel like she's given enough to do, I don't want to tell them they're wrong. And say you're wrong for liking Yaz's portrayal. Um, and so I think that happened a lot this season where I would watch something and think, well, poof. And then I would see people who really, really responded positively. And it became a fine line about not trying to rain on somebody's parade. Um, and I think Yaz is where that comes up most frequently because fundamentally I just don't think the character justified her own existence a lot this season which is a shame because I think the actress gets capable of much more and I hope we see more of her but this season if you removed Yaz I don't think the emotional dynamic of the season would change no that much. and that's a yeah shame. I agree she's um it, it felt odd the the fact of being a police officer it seemed to come out in a few episodes where she would, uh, she was good at maybe sort of find out information, as in she was good with relating to people and, and, and questioning people. But then in Arachnids in the UK, which, you know, she's back in her home city where she works as a police officer, um, it seemed that that didn't impact on events whatsoever. You know, she sees a guy, she sees uh, Robertson's bodyguard carrying a gun, which is completely legal in the UK. Um, you can't, mm -hmm. uh, if you're a bodyguard, you, you can't carry a handgun. Um, and, and even the fact that everything that was going on, she didn't call for backup or anything like that. It felt quite jarring, I think. It just is an obvious thing for her to do. Um, yeah. And uh, I suppose it makes you wonder why she's a police officer, <laughs> why, why Writer is a police officer. Yeah, I, I have a little tiny pet theory I've never actually said to anyone, so this will be an exclusive. Um, I wonder if the 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 three companions aren't meant to each reflect a different aspect of the doctor um and we have graham sort of as the wise old person 
which is definitely part of the Doctor. We have Ryan as sort of the youthful, getting to scrapes, but good-natured type, which is also definitely part of the Doctor. And then we have Yaz, who's sort of the I'm-going-to-fix-the-problem police officer mentality, and she does travel in a police box. You know, the Doctor is fundamentally there to help people and to you know, not punish bad guys, but to deal with bad people and whatnot. And I sort of wonder if that was sort of an idea Chibnall had at some point to sort of like trisect the Doctor's character and to have each of the three companions reflect a bit back to her. Because Graham and Ryan do those parts. Yaz, though, it's, she said she's a policeman, but then she doesn't do a lot of policey stuff. And I kind of wished a bit more policey stuff, a bit more sense of maybe moral outrage at various moments or um, trying to, like, say, no, we need to help something. A little bit more from her would have been nice, I think. But, again, maybe we'll see more of that in Season 12 now that Ryan and Graham seem to have reached their the end points of the stories that we saw. Maybe Yaz will get to come yeah, before. Yeah, hopefully. Um, and, and what you're saying there about the, uh, the the lack of moral outrage, that's been a bit of a criticism of the series as well, that uh, the Doctor hasn't always necessarily mm. taken a moral stance, um, particularly... Uh, I mean, she did against against Roberts and the Arachnids in the UK, but it seemed very futile. Um, in the uh, the Battle of... Uh, Rav Kavath, yeah, yeah, um, the in yeah, the season in finale, the epic season finale, the the Ucks, uh, <laughs> um, the the Ucks had killed billions and billions of people um, for for their belief, but there was no kind of uh, remonstration with them that maybe they should be more careful in future or not believe somebody turns up who turns up uh, claiming to be a god, but then wants to. Kill you know, kill billions by by destroying planets. They just kind of merrily went on the way. At the end, there was there was some odd jarring bits like that, and then probably most famously is Kablam as well, when the Doctor comes down on the yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about we'll talk yeah. about Kablam, yeah, yeah. But I think I think the battle of uh, Renskor of Kalos with the Ux, I think it's interesting because it yeah the la- the fact that the Doctor doesn't do much with the Ux at the end, sort of it it makes people of faith seem dumb in a way that I didn't like uh, that this sort of, but I would also think the doctor, if she is taking her role as sort of the one, one of the beings in the universe who can sort of help set the cosmic balance or whatever, which she has often had that role consciously or unconsciously in the past, you would think you would do something with the ox because here are these two tremendously powerful creatures and there are only ever two of them. Like, it's that's the entirety of the race. It's like Jedi. Um, you'd think she would find a good place for them to go and take them there so they would they would be safe, but also they wouldn't be succumb. Like, I don't know. It felt very sort of like leaving this massive, dangerous weapon just sitting around where yeah. anyone might use it. I, I don't know. It, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then there was an, a discussion to be had, I think, in that episode about... Um, Tim Shaw escaping uh, in the first episode to to go on mm. to do all this as well, mm-hmm. uh, and it feels like they they missed some some opportunities to, to have those discussions, particularly with Graham initially wanting to yeah, kill Tim Shaw uh, in revenge for for Grace's death uh, in the first episode, and then yeah, it it just sort of resolved itself without really the Doctor's interference in that one, didn't it? They just uh, they just locked him away in stasis. 
Uh, and I, I get him. Yeah, I, I don't know if he's meant to be like another, like a recurring villain. I feel like a new back. Davros. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, that. That's the idea. It reminded me of, uh, of Davros at the end of Destiny, the Daleks getting, um, getting put away in prison mm-hmm. and, uh, and in stasis. Uh, the other thing I was just thinking the other day was as well is uh, yeah. we learn in the woman who fell to earth is that all these humans are regularly getting kidnapped um, as part of the Stenzas mm-hmm. uh, election process or whatever, um, which obviously happens. They, they change leaders quite often because it's <laughs> only seven years since the guy's sister went missing. Um, yeah, and it doesn't even occur to the doctor that all these humans are in stasis on the Stenza homeworld, <laughs> waiting to be rescued. Yeah, there's a lot of things that don't seem to occur to the Doctor like that. Um, yeah, and that was one I remember when everyone sort of realized, okay, the Stenza are, like, going to be a recurring thread. And it was unclear for a while whether it was going to be Tim Shaw per se or whether it was going to be the Stenza per Stenza or whatever. Um, but in the end, it really more about, about Tim Shaw. But, yeah, this idea that there are these other humans, including this guy's sister, that we spend a lot of time in the woman who's fell to Earth thinking about um, what it feels like to have someone in your family just sort of vanish and be abducted. Um, and then that's just, that's just, it's just dropped. It's just completely dropped. Um, I would think that, you know, something that the doctor would do as soon as she got control of the TARDIS again at the end of Ghost Mom, it'd be like, okay, we'll drop you guys off, but I'm going to the Stenza home world because this needs to stop. And she just doesn't. She just bounces about. It's like there's a thing. There's un, just dangling yeah. plot threads. Because presumably, with, with, when Tim Shaw didn't return, the Stenza did exactly the same thing again to uh, to nominate the next leader. Yes, uh, uh, one thinks, one would expect. Yeah. Uh, the other thing uh, I, I thought was a kind of an odd thing, like you say about things left dangling. Every time the Doctor talks about regeneration. Nobody reacts to it. <laughs> like it, it's unclear, I think, whether the companions mm. believe her or they've had a conversation off screen where she's explained about regeneration and the fact that you know she's had multiple different bodies. Um, yeah, it's a slightly odd thing. And then in it takes you away, and she talks about the woolly rebellion. Again, nobody reacts to it, and like yeah. Yeah, no one says, what do you mean, the sheep are going <laughs> to kill you? Yeah, no one... I need to know when this happens. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, um, and it's it's not just like the normal sort of name dropping with the Doctor, <clears throat> where, you know, you can say, oh, well, I don't know whether to believe that or not. Um, because it does suggest a level of sentience in the sheep, which would make people rethink their uh, what they eat and what they wear. And uh... <laughs> Yes. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, again. But I, I mean, I, I did love it. Takes away is my uh, my favorite of the series. But uh, yeah, there was there's a few times like that where where things are, are left hanging. I think the characters would say, "Hang on, what's that?" And it's not like something happens that then interrupts the conversation. Uh, it's just that the conversation moves on. So. Well, I think it's also, and I think part of that, and I think that's fundamentally right. But I think what happened partly with that is, um. For whatever reason, they they gap a lot of the travels they all have together. Um, like um, they have the the competition about what the, the discussion about what the best New Year's Eve was at the beginning of Resolution, which I thought felt super ham fisted. I didn't like that moment, 
but it made it clear they've they've been kind of doing stuff, tons of stuff off screen that we don't see. Um, which I like. It I think that helps, you know, it helps future big future big finish writers and everything, obviously. Um, which which is important. But I think it means that when those moments happen, especially when they happen in the second half of the season, you can kind of go, Well, they've heard her say all sorts of crazy stuff. And they just don't, you know, they just don't question it. Um, but that forgets that we haven't heard her say these things before. It sort of forgets that the viewer at home, that the companions need to be, to some extent, the people who ask the questions the viewers at home need. And I know that's a very basic, dramatic function that you want to not limit the companions to, but they still need to serve that function. If they don't, someone needs to say, wait, what? You know, and the companions here almost never do the wait, what? And that's, uh, that's distressing at times. Yeah, but we didn't talk about Ryan much, who I think arguably is the lead companion. If there is one who's sort of the main companion, whose who's emotional arc we see most clearly and um, who gets the most sort of side adventures, I think it's probably Ryan. Um, which is okay. I liked him well enough. Um, I didn't think he was quite as well drawn as Graham. Um, but you know, yeah, <laughs> he seemed like a nice bloke. <laughs> I, I think, um, just as a, as a sidebar to that, one of the things I feel like is that, um, the companions don't go through much, do they? He's, um, the, obviously the death of Grace no. at the very beginning, but in terms of then what happens to them, you don't have any of the usual sort of, uh, possession or, duplication or even of... kidnapping like they yeah. don't the, the you know fundamental rule of doctor who is that the companion gets in trouble yeah and it just didn't happen and i and c- clearly it must have been a fairly conscious decision um because they they you know like look at the witch finders where they deliberately invert it and instead of it being you know tegan being drowned for a witch or something it's the doctor which is a nice sort of subversion of the trope and allows them to do things with the doctor being a woman now. But it did, um, yeah, it did mean that sort of, I never quite felt the danger and there really should be danger with traveling to the doctor and, and messing with time and things that should have potential repercussions, which meant all the villains felt very sort of meh. Yeah. Um, even the Dalek at the end never actually threatens our main cast, really. Yeah, and, and it right. seemed like maybe if uh, if, if Yasmin, uh, we talked I talked about this on the Resolution podcast, but maybe if Yasmin had been possessed or yeah. even had a reaction to the fact that those police officers who were killed were her colleagues, mm-hmm. uh, that it, it, it would have had some kind of an impact on her. Um, but yeah, those feel like rites of passage, I think, for, for Doctor Who companions that... Uh, <laughs> You get hypnotized or uh, there's an evil double of you at some point. So uh, we, hopefully we will see that in, in Series 12 for them. But uh, yeah. And the other thing is they, a lot, especially early on, they walk around in one big group mm-hmm. with, with the guest cast as well. Um, I think the more successful stories for me uh, are the ones where they're, they're split up a little bit. So like It Takes You Away, um, The Witch Finders, there's... They, they have them doing different things. Um, Kablam really kind of up until the end, uh, I thought worked well where they're all working in different uh, departments and seeing what they can find out. Yeah. 
Kerblam felt like a traditional. Uh, it's interesting. The ones you cite are the ones that feel most like actual Doctor Who episodes. Yeah. Like, are the, what we expect from a Doctor episode. Witchfinders especially felt like could have been ported in from another era in many ways. Um, uh, but Kerblam had that as well. And I think it, it takes you away is similar in some ways. Yeah, the sort of earlier ones where they really are just in a big gaggle all the time felt different. I'm not saying bad, but it just meant that it was much, much harder to sort of differentiate between the various characters when they're all just sort of in a group always. Um, Yeah, and it didn't really give the individual characters a lot of moments to shine. It's interesting because it's... it. I think it says something about Chibnall's fundamental difference in what he thinks the show is. Because uh, on... um, on the season four box set, there's a commentary. There's commentary on all the stories in season four of Doctor Who. Um, but the science and library force of the dead, Moffat's on one or both of them. I forget which. Um, but he talks about the nodes where Donna's face pops up in the cliffhanger on the node. And he said, you know, as soon as he had the idea for the node, <clears throat> he said, well, of course, that means the companion's face needs to end up on the node. Because that's how Doctor Who works. There is this horrible danger. The companion gets in the horrible danger. That is like what you have to do. That sort of like dramatic structure of Doctor Who. And that had been the dramatic structure of Doctor Who for about 52 years. Um, And it feels like Chibnall saying, no, it doesn't have to be that. And that's, it's an interesting choice. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I don't think it necessarily works. But I don't want to say yet, well, it's a bad idea. I kind of want to give myself more time to think about it. But I do think it meant that the the villains felt less villainous and less threatening. Uh, the companions felt less differentiated. And it just didn't quite feel as dramatic as maybe it could have. Yeah. Uh, and I think, yeah, to go with what I said before, was the, the feeling that the Doctor was a little powerless at times as well. Um, mm. which I don't know, it feels like a reflection of the times that, you know, it's I feel like we can't do anything about Brexit or Trump or the kind of general rise of right wing populism across the world. But that's not what you want from Doctor Who, is it? You you don't want you want to feel that there is somebody that can, you know, overcome these things and will stand up to the the racists or, you know, we'll we'll be able to intervene and, and stop uh, uh stop the guy getting shot in um in oh god <laughs> yeah <I just laughs> the uh in demons of punjab demons of the punjab yeah yeah um that was uh that was really difficult i think the, watching the doctor walk away um i mean it's the element that that had to happen in order for yasmin to come about mm-hmm. um but uh, i think especially coming off the back of series 10 where you had thin ice and the doctor kind of really standing up to Sutcliffe in that. And, you know, they, there's some good discussions in that episode when they're talking about, uh, you know, Bill says, you know, have you had to kill people? And the Doctor says, yeah, well, sometimes you have no choice and things. That the, 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 the Doctor in this uh, doesn't really take that many stands and, and and doesn't, you know, as I said before, even kind of, uh, you know, remonstrate with the Ooks or or with the, uh, the system in Kablam. No, but I, th- I think you're right. I think you're getting at something that she's sort of either <clears throat> the stories are constructed in such a way 
that there is no actual villain. Uh, so that's like Saranga Conundrum falls in that category. Like the Pating, I mean, I guess it's a bad, it's a little space creature. Like it's not even, um, it's not even, it doesn't even communicate as far as we can tell. Like it's just a space creature. And, and that obviously leads to some lack of dramatic ability for the doctor to sort of face off with a bad guy. Um, and then the moments where there is something resembling a villain, often it's sort of this very nebulous sort of thing. So and this is something some people really liked about the series, I should say. Like they liked the fact that it did reflect this sort of sense that the system is more powerful. And so the historicals largely were about history had to happen this way, even though that sucks. Um, which it, which is one reason by, by the way, they stopped doing the historicals in the 60s is because it meant that the main cast kind of showed up and then watched things happen. And there were only so many ways to try to play with that formula and they kind of had reached their maximum. That said, it does mean that you get stories at the time like The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve, which is some of the best Doctor Who, dramatic Doctor Who ever done. It's phenomenal. But it's depressing as all hell and it's arguably not suitable for children. Um, and so here, you know, you have Rosa where there is a villain, but the villain is really the fact that humans are racist. Like it's the 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 evil space racist from the future is stupid and boring and not interesting and doesn't do anything really aside from sort of poke things in a slight way which is an interesting sort of version of like an evil time meddler um but they don't really play with that much clearly the villain in the story is human racism it's that's the, that's the bad guy um and demons and punjab it's similar it's it's sort of secularism and not secularism like it's sectarianism and religious persecution and his hatred and nationalism, like all those are the bad guys in Demons of Punjab. But it means the doctor fundamentally can't do anything. Like she just can't. That she can't she can't with even with her magic wand, she can't make everyone better people than they already are. Certainly not a, not ahead of schedule. Um which I think is what makes the stories where she does have somebody she can hold her own against, like the Witchfinders, feel so much more satisfying dramatically um even if they're sort of more of a, a fantasy but doctor who is a fantasy show at the end of the day like it's science fantasy if you want to call it that but it's certainly fantastical and what the doctor does is beat the bad people i suppose there's a grimness to that that you've got the the, the racism in in the 1950s but then the the uh, the Cresco the guy in that one is from the far distant future, and those feelings are still there despite the fact that by that stage humans in Doc Two will have met loads of different alien races. Um, yeah. it, it's uh, and then in the um, Ghost Monument, there's there's still kind of ethnic cleansing going on. That's what um, is it Angstrom talks about that that her people. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a it's not yeah. kind of striking a, a, a very positive note there, is it? And then it seems like at the end of Arachnids in the UK that it's inevitable that uh, that Robertson's going to be the next president uh, and that kind of thing. So it's, uh, I appreciate the, the, the historical thing that the Doctor's kind of limited, but then, as I said before, Robertson and the Ooks and, uh, and people like that, it feels she is behaving in the same way as the historical ones uh, with the, the present day, which isn't usually what happens in Doctor Who. Uh, she can go into her no. history and not, and not alter anything, but 
in the present day, the doctor can avert any number of uh, alien invasions or scientific experiments gone wrong, that kind of thing. Um, uh, and then in the future, it's uh, <laughs> it's all up for grabs. She can topple empires and uh, bring down dictators and things like that. Uh, but it felt like yeah, it leveled everything even... to, to the same sort of... Uh, so it's the same sort of historical setting, if that makes sense. Or hist- historical... No, I think yeah. it does. Yeah, I think it, 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 it made for a sort of um, passive bystandery feeling, um, which, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really enjoy. Um, and I, I just couldn't help wonder, I'm like, it's interesting to have the doctor like that. And some argue that the Davison doctor is, is like that a lot, um, where he's essentially unable to do anything right. Um, um, although I'll say I, my favorite Davison stories are the ones where he gets to be very doctory and save the day. Um, so, but he, but he does also have this sort of sense of passivity and the problem is too big for me to fix. And the most I can do is sort of save a few people here and there, maybe. Um, and that's, if that's what's happening, it's an interesting decision. Um, I really hoped that the first female doctor would, passivity would not be a word that would be easily associated with her. Um, it just feels a bit, I don't know, it feels a bit gendered. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm wrong though, but it felt that way to me. I thought, where's, where's the badass doctor? And not like physically like buffying it up and punching people all the time, obviously, but you know, where is her big moments? Where is her big sort of, this is where I draw the line. This is what I do sort of, they just barely exist. And that felt, that felt disappointing. Um, but again, maybe, maybe, you know, um, this is the thing. Chibnall has said that he has a five-year plan. Some people believe him. Um, if he does, I would not at all be surprised if part of that five-year plan is this incarnation of the Doctor coming into sort of that element of her personality. Sort of the sort of things that she's left undone in, in this season coming back to haunt her in various ways until she realizes she needs to be more active even if it means choosing sides in a way that she's not always comfortable with. Yeah, that would be very interesting. Maybe. Uh, yeah, do that. Um, and fantastic if, if Jordi Whittaker stays for five years to see yeah. that through. Um, it'd be... Yeah, but like I said, yeah. who knows? Who knows if that's actually what's mm-hmm. going on? But as the season progressed, I kept thinking, like, she's just not going to get her big moments, is she? And she really, she really doesn't. Uh, and that was... The closest she came, I would say, was in resolution. Um, and even that, it was sort of her flanked by 8,000 yeah, other people. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, um, it's in yeah, because recently watching season 19, obviously just come out on Blu-ray, and uh, I had the same sort of thoughts, having just watched series 11, watching season 19. There's, there, there is that sort of um, maybe where consequences aren't, aren't thought through kind of thing slightly as well, where, you know, the... Um, uh, Tegan and Nyssa have sort of both been uh, both had their families killed by the master, but but don't have that kind of reaction, uh, you know, that they should. Um, and and the passivity of, um, as we say, of Davis and Doctor in Black Orchid, um, it's very odd that he agrees to cover up a murder to uh, <laughs> just to yeah, disturb some uh, some guests at a party. Yeah, it's uh, 
Yeah, no, to sort of maintain uh, British upper upper class comfortability. Yeah, it was yeah. very. I think the the, the yes, yeah. we want to know that there was a murder on the loose <laughs> more than they'd not want uh, some awkward scenes at a party. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that yeah, that, that we won't get into so, that. But yeah, I think that's yeah, right. Yeah. But I think that's so this yeah. sort of thing um, to go to something the same with the uh, the the issue between Ryan and Graham being that he won't call him granddad, that they could have made more perhaps of, although it isn't his fault uh, because he didn't know what he was doing when he, when he presses the, the sort of floating lights that give permission. He does then, you know, kind of indirectly lead on to the deaths of, of Grace and kind of other people, uh, the, the security guard and the, mm-hmm. uh, the drunk guy with the kebab and stuff like that, that, that maybe that would be something that Graham and Ryan would have to reconcile with each other. Um, so yeah, that's in, in terms of the season nineteen parallels made me think. You know, there's there's, there's interesting things that are unexplored consequences maybe that uh, that that could have been used. Yeah, and I think I think fundamentally there's just um, yeah, the sort of lack of consequences, lack of judgment, um, um, in the sense of like uh, judgment post fact, not judgment of people. Uh, there, there isn't much of that either, you know, like, um, even, you know, the sort of few moments where they sort of do the thing to the bad guy, um, like when Ryan, uh, sends the space racist back to like the dinosaur age or whatever he does, um, or where Ryan and Grand trap Tim Shaw in the stasis machine, it's, it feels sort of like, um, yeah, it's not, it's, you're not actively ending the threat you're sort of putting it in a little box <laughs> like literally in the case of the tim shaw and the stasis pod you're putting this little box um and it just felt sort of unsatisfying and i'm not saying like i want them to be like going and have be bloodthirsty and have blood on their hands and things but there at least was something as much as i disliked a lot of kerblam there was something nice about the fact that at the end the threat was dealt with um and there was recognition that things needed to change to make sure that things were better in the future. I don't think the threat was dealt with well or that the things that were going to change were no. the right things <laughs> that were going to change necessarily. But I think at least it sort of recognized that this yeah. needs to happen. And again, I keep coming back to a story like The Witchfinders that has that very sort of traditional, I would say, RTD-like sort of uh, celebrity mm-hmm. historical vibe. Which meant you had at the end you had to stop the alien invasion, you know, and so they had yeah. to do it. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The Kablam thing. Uh, yeah, I think kind of think at the end that next time the system doesn't like something, <laughs> it's learned that if it kills a few people, it will get its own way. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> seems like an, an odd. Revolution. It was, and and the doctor's speech about systems aren't bad, yeah. people are bad. I was just like. Have you read anything ever? <laughs> like it's there are literally entire books about how because people design systems, systems are always inherently flawed. Um this idea that you can separate the system from the people who created it and sustain it and support it, it was bonkers to me. Um and I just kept wondering, I'm like, okay, so if no one back on uh this planet has a job and they all have to go to this moon to work for crap wages and never get to go see their family. Who's buying <laughs> all this stuff? 
Yeah, the the world building wasn't wasn't great, was it? Um, in the series, I think mm. particularly the Ghost Monument, we you've got this race, um, and uh, the Enzo talks about how his ship is famous, and people have written songs about it and things like that. So you get the idea there's this this huge following for this race, like it's Formula One or something. Um, but then there's no sense that anybody's actually watching it. There's nobody there to see the start of the race or the end of the race. There's no suggestion that it's being filmed and broadcast or anything like that. So yeah, no, it's it was completely. It felt so. Yeah, because what it felt like it felt like enlightenment. Because essentially, it was enlightenment again. Um, and enlightenment, it makes sense that this is sort of happening secretly because it's a a race being run by extra-dimensional beings because they get bored otherwise. You know, that makes total sense. Um, but, but yeah, if it's this sort of, like, actual humans running an actual race that's meant to be famous, you'd think there would be some acknowledgement of that from someone somewhere instead of all we see, all we see of the race is a hologram in a chair. Um, yeah, it's one of those moments where it felt like and I wonder if it was just sort of the world building wasn't good enough in the scripting stage, which is possible, or if it was that this had to be done on the cheap. And I don't, I don't know which it was, um, and we may never know, but it felt like there were a lot of moments like that where I kept thinking, where is everybody? Where is, where is the sense of scale here? Everything felt very empty. Everything felt very small at some times. Um, and and everything kind of felt unfilled out. And I was like, okay, that's because yeah, the prize was was to make them uh, fabulously wealthy. So you think for that mm-hmm. somebody's getting some broadcasting rights or or some point to it. It's for somebody's entertainment um, rather than just to see who turns up at the end to give them money. It uh, yeah, it, it felt very odd like that. And and another opportunity I think to to have the cast split up. Um, but as soon as the, they're rescued by the ships and they crash, they're, they're all back together again. They could have each faced separate dangers and things, yeah. not knowing if the others were alive. Uh, yeah. There's uh, some odd choices on that one, I think. Yeah. No, I think that's actually, yeah. You, you imagine if you if you pitch that story to any other Doctor Who showrunner, um, they come back and say, well, how about we keep the companions... The doctor and one companion with one racer and the doctor and the other two companions with another racer. Um, and maybe they know each other are okay because they get to talk via something. But, you know, you know, if you're if that's what you're worried about, there's another way around that instead of just having them together the entire time in one mass. Um, yeah. No. So you said your favorite yes. was It Takes You Away. Why, why was that such a fun one for you? I don't know. Um, I think... I think it was very different to the others. It felt like mm-hmm. they, they split the characters up, which which I liked a lot. The ideas behind it were very different to to what you've seen in Doctor Who. And there was a lot of sort of misdirection that I quite liked as well. Where first of all, you thought it was a, sort of a base under siege type thing. Um, but then it seemed like the that uh, Eric was going to be the villain, that it was going to be like a sort of a Bennett and, and Vicky in the rescue type situation. And it kept me guessing throughout. I think moving mm. through different different locations maybe kind of helped it to feel more, more of a complete story as well. The interzone stuff I, I really loved. And um, 
Kevin Eldon as uh, as Ribbons, I thought was was brilliant. Probably up there with uh, with Alan Cumming as one of the uh, as the the best kind of guest actor uh, of the series for me. Um, and then yeah, just the 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 idea of the sentient universe that was a very very Doctor Who thing. And yeah, I like the the, the frog on the chair it was <laughs> it was just a totally brilliant, unexpected, <laughs> um, kind of cool. And it looked like something from classic Doctor Who because it wasn't a great looking model, was it? <laughs> but, uh, no, it was just a frog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> frog sitting on a chair. It was, yeah, it was interesting. I because a lot of people responded very well to it, and I a lot of like fans. I'll put it that way. Like I think. I think this is a season where definitely sort of viewers, viewers and fans kind of split differently. Um, but a lot of sort of the fans I know who are sort of like long-term fans or old-school fans, uh, a lot of them did respond very well to It Takes You Away. Um, and I think I think partly because it was very bold in its ideas and it sort of had that sort of Doctor Who craziness, the way you're describing, like there's Sentience Universe and there's an anti-zone and there's a guy named Ribbons. Um, and I think... I think what what put me off about it was they said all of that, but I didn't understand any of it. Like, I understood the idea of the solar tractor being a sentient universe. The fact that it's explained away by, like, a Gallifrey fairy tale that the Doctor said, oh, I know about it. There's been a lot of those, hasn't there? There's there's been too Um, many Gallifrey fairy tales that turn out to be real, I think, yeah. Yeah, and they they happen in several Chibnall stories as well, because let's not forget about the Shakti in... Power of Three, which was a Chibnall script, this random villain that comes in at the end that is supposedly tremendously powerful and ancient, and the Doctor's like, oh yeah, Gallifrey fairy tale, whatever. Um, but the idea of the solar truck was interesting, but like, I didn't quite figure out what the anti-zone was, how anything or anyone lived there, um, why we spent so much time there. It felt like a thing to generate suspense. It, you know, it felt like it was taking us away from, uh, taking us away from the actual story of the episode, which is, which I think should have been, should have been as a strong choice. But I think uh, I would have proposed if I were sitting in that meeting, I would have said, okay, well, how about the anti-zone is very brief or doesn't exist at all. And instead the soul attract presents different versions of reality or different things to everyone. So that, you know, because uh, think about it, even Ryan doesn't get to really deal with Grace. And it's his grandmother. I mean, she raised him. Um, if anyone has a claim to be angry that Grace has gone, I think Ryan is up there. Um, and where it doesn't become Ryan's story at all. And it becomes very much about sort of romantic partnership exclusively in the solo track, which is strange. Uh, because as soon as as soon as Hannah comes through, Hannah's like, "You're not my mom." She doesn't fall for it at all. Um, but I think it would have been interesting to see the solo track try to essentially manipulate or convince every member of the TARDIS crew, like, and have it be about that. Have it be about you know, sort of blow up Graham's emotional arc and sort of share it among everyone, and have that be the main thrust of the story with the doctor trying to figure out what is going on here, this is wrong. And maybe even they all have like separate visions of what the solar track is like. Like they don't see each other, but they all have like different versions of this paradise. I don't know, something like that. 
But instead, it felt like we're just spending a lot of time going through this sort of weird nether zone that I kept thinking, well, how does anyone exist in this? Like, why is there air? Why is there gravity? Why is there a guy (laughs) with a balloon? What is happening? Um, Yeah. So I I don't know. It really... Okay. It didn't. It didn't sit well with me. I think was, I it think. seems like there's quite a bit of yeah. stuff cut from the the interzone as well, because you see some uh, some behind the scenes shot, and there was other creatures that were that were cut from the final episode, and um, very kind of Guillermo del Toro looking uh, stuff in there as well. So it'd be interesting to see if there was yeah. more explanation that was that was cut. So what was the highlight for you, episode wise? I th- I think my favorite episode was probably the Witchfinders. Uh, Simply because it was not simply because, um, but it it required the least effort on me to sort of like it as Doctor Who, which is a really backhanded compliment, perhaps. Um, but I, I very quickly with this season realized that whatever this season was doing was not something I was responding to. Um, I would I'm not gonna say it's bad. I have my issues and blah blah blah. But you know, people who love it and God bless them. Um, but I realized, okay, this isn't, but, you know, I watched it because I wanted to see what was happening. I was curious whether it would change or evolve over the course of the season, all this. So I kept watching, obviously. Um, and some stories hit better with others because they felt I could sort of understand them through what I expect Doctor Who to be better. Um, and Witchfinders just really hit that sweet spot. Like it really landed in that notch. Does that mean my brain of what Doctor Who can and should be is too limited? Perhaps. Um, But at the same time, there's a reason I would say that anyone who watches a show or a movie watches it for a a particular reason. And while it's the show's creator's right to do what they want with the show, it's also the viewer's responsibility to say, well, it's maybe not what I want to watch anymore. And so they watch something else, you know? Like, none of us are obliged to watch Doctor Who if we don't like it. That's just that's just life. Uh, which fans sometimes forget. You can, if you hate it that much, stop watching. Um, uh, but I didn't hate it. It just sort of wasn't, I was like, this isn't really fitting for me. But Witchfinders really did. It's um, interesting historical setting. Uh, there are some really good jokes. There wasn't a ton of jokes all of the season, but Witchfinders had some really nice comedy. Uh, uh, Alan Cummings' James I was fantastic. Um, I liked the fact that while there was um, serious, serious sort of uh, anger at the sort of uh, lack of feminism at the time and and things, there was not that much judgment actually about the fact that they just believed different things in the early 1600s. Like the doctor, and maybe I missed it. I don't remember anyone having a speech saying. You believe in witches? That's stupid. You know? They didn't go back and be like, you're idiots. You don't understand how anything works. That's why you think witches are real, blah, blah, blah. It was it was scary that these people... What was scary was how fervently they believed in the thing and what they were willing to do. Um, but the fact that they believed they were righteous was not questioned. And that was quite interesting. I liked that. Mm. Um, and... yeah. Yeah, they they question more. They sort of say, um, you know, what what has Satan done, or what have the witches done, rather than why do you yeah. think that? Yeah, that was uh, yeah. I, I thought generally the nice tone note, of it yeah. worked really nicely. I thought um, I thought it gave them different things to do. I thought Ryan was interesting as sort of the you know 
the beloved of James the First. I thought it was an interesting role for him to play. Um, I thought Yaz got to be nicely uh, empathetic um, with the young the young girl. I thought she got some nice like I thought they all got. I thought Graham actually had maybe the least to do of any of the companions, which is maybe the only story of the season that it's like that. Um, but I think he was used still well. He still had his sort of moments. He got to wear the hat. Um, and the doctor got to do a lot of very doctory things, like escaping from underwater via chains and say that she got taught by Harry Houdini. Like, that's such a doctor move. Such a doctor move. Um, and then, you know, you trap the evil aliens back in a tree again. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> and the fact that it was all caused by the woman wanting a better view and and all the sort of subcurrents of sort of life in that village and you know the girl who married well and sort of became above her family and i thought it was, i thought it was all done quite quite well uh yeah so i really i just really liked it and it and it hit the sort of notes that i want my doctor who to hit and so therefore i was sort of like oh rose to the top very fast Yeah, it was up there for me as well, absolutely, that one. Um, and the music mm. for the series I absolutely loved mm. as well. It's not something we've talked about yet, but Sagan mm. Akinola's music I thought was was excellent all the way through. Um, the Doctor theme, much less kind of bombastic mm. than, than some of the others. Um, and it took me a while to identify it, but then on a, on a rewatch, you, you get it. I think the first time is when she faces Tim Shaw on the crane. Um, and then you can sort of... Uh, you can pick it out um at other kind of key times but uh yeah much much more subtle as, as a, all the music is i think throughout the series compared to uh to yeah Murray it was Gold definitely stuff. more like uh it felt more like underscoring um just sort of like you would often forget there was music in a scene um there would be music in a scene but it would it, it wasn't making itself known the way that the score often did during Murray Gold. i i actually kind of like the bigger uh, with Doctor Who, but I thought I thought the music was was good, um, and I'm interested to see how it sort of develops in the second season. Um, but yeah, I liked it certainly, but it didn't it didn't like register with me the way a lot of the Murray Gold stuff did quickly. Yeah, I think the sort of the eleventh Doctor theme is going to take some beating overall, isn't it? Yeah, because it's it's so great, so kind of stirring and iconic. Uh, that's uh, that that's going to be very difficult to be ever i think yeah yeah such yeah, a great piece right. of music yeah, yeah so. i think what's interesting about season 11 is that um to talk about it is to kind of to talk about it for me is to quickly realize how little there is to talk about um mm. that it's it's thin um there's you know, you, you think about other seasons of Doctor Who we've had, almost any season since the show's come back, the first 10, um, and there's just, it, they feel meatier. And you could say, well, you know, this, this season is shorter, it's three episodes less um, than what we've seen before, or, you know, or this or that or whatever. I think fundamentally Chibnall's just doing a different kind of show. Um, and I'd, it's less to my taste so far. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not sort of exactly what Doctor Who should be. Maybe Doctor Who should be sort of less complicated, simpler, less serialized, more straightforward, self-contained, um, 
Because even RTD had tremendous amount of serialization over the series and over his entire era. Um, and certainly Moffat got criticized heavily for getting too into his puzzle boxiness and confusing plot lines and River Song and all that. And and Chibnall seems to be doing a very, very, very stripped down. Um, and I, I worry that he stripped so much of it out that the show became kind of hollow. Um and it feels sort of thin to me, but, you know, we'll see. <coughs> but I do think also we as, as modern Doctor Who fans, you know, RTD and Stephen Moffat uh, are both like, even outside their work in Doctor Who, are some of the greatest television creators of, you know, who are currently alive working in the British television. Like they're just... They're incredibly good at everything, it seems. Like, you say, well, Moffat's funnier, but RTD is actually really, really funny. And it's like, well, Moffat can't write characters. It's actually Moffat, a lot of character, Moffat's characters are great. And they have all this other success doing all these other types of things as well, like dramas and comedies. And, you know, RTD just did a very British scandal. Uh, and Moffat obviously had Sherlock and Coupling and is doing movies. And, like, they are both huge, huge talents. Um, and the idea that um, Chibnall is very capable, but maybe not on their level. And maybe he is, and I just don't see it. But to me right now, it feels like Chibnall is a very capable TV writer. But he's not the sort of like once in a generation genius level. It's like, well, that's not his fault. <laughs> and it just sort of means that sort of like maybe... Maybe our expectations of what Doctor Who can and should be were just blown so far out of the water by 10 years of two super geniuses that now to have a very talented writer doing the show and in charge and doing it his way feels like a bit of a come down. And maybe season 12 will feel less like one because we won't be comparing it so much with seasons before. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll be kind of used to that that mode by then, yeah. I think yeah, yeah, I completely agree with what you say there. And um, the I know so, some people uh, complained about the amount to which it has been about the companions, and the companions have been, uh, you know, kind of in some way uh, have, have some kind of power or destiny or, or that kind of thing. Yeah. You know that um, which is which is again has been totally stripped away, but but potentially too far in that they. They don't really even have much development from from the beginning of this series to the end of the series. Um, as I say the, uh, the the Ryan Graham Grandad thing just feels so <laughs> superficial and uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know kind of just not, not particularly meaningful. Um, you know, potentially the thing with his dad is more meaningful, but it, it it's kind of uh, over and done in, in really one episode, and there wasn't even a lot of conflict. They came to an understanding pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and you don't even, I don't know, I suppose you might, you might see him back, but it felt kind of pretty resolved. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think like, he's coming back again. Yeah, I suppose the episode's called Resolution, but uh, <laughs> it, it seems like uh, it's not, it's not then something where they're going to kind of need to work on their relationship over the next series or anything like that. So it's, uh, yeah, it does feel like in terms of like saying, big finish and spin-off, like I've, I've, I've read the first couple of the books and they could be placed anywhere in the series. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's nothing to to market anything in particular, other than the first three, I guess. After which they, uh, after uh, Rackham is in the UK, when they choose to to travel with the Doctor, yeah, um, it's it's the only sort of uh, slight difference. 
Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah and that, that's, that feels very yeah. stripped back as well. Yeah, I think that that sort of way of sort of doing the like light kidnapping, just like we saw at the beginning of the very beginning of the season in Unearthly Child, or very of the show in Unearthly Child. You know, starting the season off that way felt like a nice homage and felt like a lot of homages in various ways to classic Doctor Who. Um, and in this, in, in that sense, in this sort of way we're talking about where there isn't character development for the companions, by and large, where there isn't, it felt much more like classic Doctor Who. Um, you know, and, and like a lot of the stories had their sort of analog in classic Doctor Who where it felt like, oh, this is modern Doctor Who does this, this is modern Doctor Who does that. Um, and, and some, you know, like Arachnids in the UK under a different title could have been made as a John Pertwee story, you know, would have been like a different version of Planet of the Spiders, essentially. Um, you know, crazy scientist and billionaire. It's like, it's green death, but with spiders instead of maggots. Um, and I think, I, I think that's, an, I think that's an interesting approach to take with sort of like what we think of now as modern Doctor Who, where it's become much more sort of involved uh, narrative uh, soap opera almost at times, sort of with these through lines for the characters to really take it back to this sort of idea. No, it's sort of a bunch of isolated adventures and there might be a few small threads that carry over, but by and large, you could scramble up the order of season 11 almost completely. And... Because think about it, with the exception of the sort of ghost monument, sort of you need to get there via transport and a few other things. Like everything kind of could happen in almost any order. Um, and that's the first time we've seen that in a long time. Um, to the point where like in season six, where they moved that a couple episodes around, they felt out of place because the characters changed so much over the course of the season. And it's, it seems like he's just not doing that. And that's, I don't want to like criticize him for that per se, but I'm just observing it feels much more like classic Doctor Who, but that feels strange in a modern TV setting to me. But but yeah, we'll see what his you know long game is if he actually has one and um, what he plans. Because like you know, as we discussed, the main emotional thread this season was this sort of thing about Granddad and it was about Grace and Ryan and Graham and and. If he decides to give them, like, the emotional weight again, I'm going to start getting really annoyed. Uh, like, it should go to Yaz, it should go to the doctor, it should go somewhere else. Hopefully to Yaz. Like, she should be the the one carrying the weight in season 12. Uh, but we'll see what he does. Absolutely. Uh, so, speaking of, of classic Doctor Who, your podcast with Carl Anderson, The Writer's Room, has now completely finished the entire classic series? Yes, we have which uh, I've, I've really enjoyed from the beginning. Uh, but now Thank you've moved you. on to the, the Outer Limits. We have, yes. Yes, so it's uh, so The Outer Limits was an American science fiction TV show from about the same time as the start of, of classic Doctor Who, um, almost exact same time. And it only ran for two seasons, but in those two seasons they produced about 65 or 70 episodes. Uh, and so we've moved on from doing classic Doctor Who, and now every month we talk about a few episodes of The Outer Limits. And after Outer Limits is done, we'll move on to other sort of uh, anthology or standalone sort of genre TV shows. Sort of Doctor Who is sweet generous, obviously, but at the same time there are shows kind of like it that have very little or no connective tissue between episodes and are mainly about standalone 
crazy science-y, fantasy adventures. Um, and so, you know, Out of Limits is an interesting one because it's very, um, very much writerly focused and has sort of distinct visions. Um, and it's much more all over the place in some ways than something like Twilight Zone is. Uh, but yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, Kyle knows the show much, much better than I do. Uh, but I'm really enjoying sort of uh, discovering new episodes and seeing a few I have before. Um, but yeah, no, it's it was sad to leave Doctor Who behind. But at the same time, we did that rare thing, which is you on a podcast where you finish. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's so few podcasts, even the ones who set like end goals hit it. And it was it felt very gratifying to be like, nope, we did it. We did what we set out to do. Um, but we really enjoyed, you know, podcasting together, obviously. And so it was never the idea that the show would end, but we did, you know, think, well, this would be an interesting way to sort of adapt it. And so far, people have come along, and that's great. Yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, I've listened to the first couple. I haven't watched the Outer Limits episode yet, but it's definitely <laughs> going to make, uh, make me go back and visit them. I remember the, was it the 90s? They did, um, like, a new, I suppose it was kind of right in the back of um, X-Files popularity and things like that. They did, um, like, an updated version. Were they remakes of the old stories, or were they new ones? I believe they were all new ones. Um, right. I have to double check that. Um, but yeah, there was there was a sort of revival in the in the mid to late eighties and into the nineties of of the sort of um, uh, anthology sci fi fantasy horror shows in at least in the states because there was there was a movie of the Twilight Zone made in like the mid eighties, all star cast, all star directors, sort of thing. It was an anthology movie, um, and that sort of kicked off a, a new version of the Twilight Zone. Um, and there was a new version of The Outer Limits, but there was also uh, t- shows that were done by uh, George Romero that were more horror-oriented, like Tales from the Dark Side. There was Tales from the Crypt on HBO. Uh, there were there was this sort of appetite for non-serialized genre storytelling, um, and those tend to become very heavily writer-focused, which is interesting uh, and and suitable for Kyle and I purposes. Um, but yeah, and then and then you know what's interesting is a show like X Files. People sort of really, it sort of when it came out, people really enjoyed it. But it ended up becoming much, much, much more about sort of the heavy serialized elements than it did about the monster of the week elements. Um, and that sort of forces some people away, but some people really go for it. That's what they love about shows like the X Files or Buffy, which had a sort of similar balance between monster of the week and sort of character development and overall arcs. Whereas these shows that stick to sort of like, nope, nothing carries over, nothing carries over, different cast, different directors, all that, um, it really allows you to look, like, to look at each episode as like a, a short play. It's like a one-act play. Um, and that's, that's quite nice if you want to look at writing. Like, you get like everything self-contained, everything's right there. You don't have to worry about what happens after or what happens before. It's all right there on the screen. Yeah. I'll definitely recommend that. I'll um, I'll put a link in the show notes. There's a Patreon for that, oh, isn't there? I've, uh, I've signed up for that. Uh, so yes, it's, um... thank you. Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, there's a Patreon for that at uh, patreon.com slash the writer's room. Uh, but if you're new to the show, I would say just go and pick uh, one of their Outer Limits episodes. Or you get the back catalog about all of Doctor Who is still there. All of classic Doctor Who's talked about um, five or six years worth of episodes. So, yeah, check us out. Yeah, the, the um, yeah, the the Doctor ones are absolutely superb, and, uh, and the, uh, looking forward to the new series as well. And where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at sjc austinite. That's a u s t e n i t e. 
Uh, it's SJC Austinite. Yeah, it's a weird little thing, but I picked it ages ago before I thought I would ever have any followers. <laughs> um, and so now when I have, you know, some, it's strange to sort of tell people what it is. But yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, um, if you're not already following me, it's at Trap1 underscore. And you can find all the previous episodes of the Trap1 podcast at podbean.trap1.com, including the previous episodes that Eric's been on. Um, mm-hmm. We last year did the novelization, Stephen Moffat's novelization of The Day of the Doctor, um, which is so good. Uh, yeah, yeah, one of my favorite Doctor Who books. So, uh, so do check that one out. Join me next week. Jason McLaughlin's back on the podcast and we'll be talking about the Dalek Master Plan uh, to celebrate its release on vinyl next week. Um, I think I'm right in saying you didn't really enjoy that one on the writer's room. Is that right, Eric? No. Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, neither did Kyle, if I recall correctly. It, it, uh, it's a giant mess. Yeah. It's a giant, <laughs> giant mess. I, I mean, there are moments of brilliance and fun and whatnot, but it's just... Uh, they clearly didn't have story for twelve episodes, but decided to do it anyway. Yeah, it, go, it goes on a bit, but I, I do, I do quite, quite like it. And when I was a kid, I absolutely loved it because I, I think it was one of the early novelizations that I got was John Peel's two-part book of it, and it. Mm. Um, I haven't read it for years, but it probably is quite condensed. There's probably a bit less sort of uh, padding than there is in the episodes, but uh, yeah, it's, it's always been uh, one that I've enjoyed. So, it'd be interesting to revisit it anyway, and uh, and then talk about that one. Thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure discussing Series 11 with you. Thank you for having me. And um, everyone should check out uh, the, the Writer's Room and the Classic Horror Cast. Mm-hmm. Oh, and your Prague blog, which is uh, which I really enjoy as well. <laughs> you just Google me, you'll find yeah. me. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. And goodbye. Toodles.